O Christ, at a time when the nation is being drawn to the word that you are coming soon, we would exclaim, come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. In a world that is so strung out and torn apart, how desperately we need you. You have not abandoned this world. You have not abandoned your friends. Which is why week after week we gather in this place that has become sacred to us to worship you. Bring a word again today. Let your word be a light upon our pathway and a lamp unto our feet. We pray in that name that is above all names. Amen. May I cut to the chase with you this morning? The Left Behind movie, which premiered last night across this nation, and the Left Behind books are big on Israel. I hold in my hands here, I'll show you a video clip in just a moment. I hold in my hands here Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins' companion book to the Left Behind series. It's entitled, Are We Living in the End Times? Can you see it there? There we go. It's, it's, it's a commentary on Revelation, basically, and uh, essentially an expose on dispensationalism, which is what they espouse. We'll get into that word in just a moment. But I, I want to share with you why Left Behind is so big on Israel. And I, this, this is a good question. I have, to answer, I have to answer this myself. Has it ever seemed strange to you, Tim LaHaye writes, that almost every night on the evening news, the eyes of the world focus on a little country of five million people in the Middle East? And only recently has China, a nation of 1.2 billion people, gained recognition on the international news airwaves. But seldom does Mexico City, one of the largest population centers in the world, draw international attention. Singapore is similarly out of the news. Those enormous centers of world population regularly stay out of the news. But when did a week last go by when Israel and Jerusalem did not fill the world's headlines? Why this remarkable focus on a little country... In the Middle East. Then LaHaye proceeds to answer his own question. Unfortunately, the answer is half right and half wrong, which throws us into quite a confusing conundrum. LaHaye's answer. Let's put it on the screen so you can see it. The answer is simply, why all this world focus? See, the answer is simply that the Hebrew and Christian prophets had so much to say about Israel and Jerusalem Period should have gone there, but it goes on. In the end times. Jerusalem, mentioned in prophecy more than any other city on earth, will be a pain in the neck to the rest of the world, just as it seems to be today. LaHaye's words there. It is not the headquarters of any world government body or banking institution, yet it remains at the center of world attention. 
Because Left Behind is endeavoring to popularize a brand of prophetic interpretation called dispensationalism. And we, we got into dispensationalism a little bit last week. Let's put the word on the screen. There you go. It's a big word. It's not in our everyday conversation. I understand that. We, we went to John Nelson Darby and we found out how back in the uh, early 1800s, this gentleman led a new movement within fundamental Christianity that embraced futurism that had been designed and uh, created by... Rome back in 1590, which shoves all the prophecies in Revelation, all the prophecies down to the end of time. Just a few little chapters at the beginning, but everything else goes to the end of time. By the way, if you were not here last week or you're listening on the radio and you say, oh, I, I didn't hear last week. So, oh, I wish you'd go to our website. Put the website up there. PMChurch.org. Go to our website and the presentation, our study last week, will be there in toto for you. Now, because... Left Behind is based on this system of biblical interpretation. It's vital for the movies. It's vital for the books to boldly, mistakenly, but boldly champion Israel at the center of end time events. In fact, Tim LaHaye is so convinced that Israel will be at the center of God's strategic final movement that he writes these words. Look at this. I call the regathering of five million Jews back to the Holy Land and they're becoming a nation in our generation, 1948. I call it, he says, the infallible sign of the approach of the end time. This is proof Jesus is soon to come. He goes on. There are so many promises in the scripture that God would eventually regather the children of Israel back into their land that if none could be found, none means not one Jew, could be found in the 20th century to be made into a nation. Notice his words. The Bible would have been revealed as a fraud. Question. But what if we discovered that in fact... The Bible never did prophesy that Israel would return as a political nation at the end of time. Answer. Then it wouldn't be the Bible that was the fraud, now would it? Our study today, what left behind, left behind. The most clarifying truth of all. Because if you want to know the difference between truth and fraud, you need to know the truth about Israel. I Wish you would take out now your study guide that is appended to your worship bulletin this morning. Our deacons are ready, by the way, to make sure that everybody here gets a study guide this morning. Hold your hand up. If you didn't get a study guide, I want one to go to you very quickly. Just hold your hand up and we'll get that in your hands. Those of you listening on the radio, again, pmchurch.org. Our study guides are also on our website, so you can go through the study guide with us. If you wish to go online right now, you can go through that study guide with us. Isn't that something? technology today. All right. So our study guide, the most clarifying truth of all, the truth about, would you write the first word in? The truth about Israel. Let's just get this study guide going. Write in the word, the truth about Israel. A truth that begins, let's put the next sentence up there, a truth that begins with a single word, conditional. Please write in the word conditional in the blank. Now, what does the word conditional mean? Well, that's very, fairly obvious. It, it has to do with certain conditions being met before anticipated results could follow. When my parents used to come to me, and I'll, I'll bet you your parents did this too. I suppose there are even parents alive who, did, who, who still do this. But when my parents would come to me and try to bribe me into being good. Now, they never called it bribe. They called it motivational incentives. When they would say to me something like, all right, Dwight, if you will quit picking on your brother Greg for a whole day. 
if you will be sweet to your sister Carrie all day long, then we will take you down to the village candy store and buy you some sweets. I want to tell you, Japanese have more varieties of candy and chocolate per capita than any other nation in the world. It's just wonderful. So I love those sweets. Now, when they said if, they were clearly making to me a conditional promise. If you do thus and so, then you will receive this or that. That's the way conditional promises work. If, you know, sometimes, by the way, they would, they would make conditional threats. Huh? Conditional warnings, you, you know. If you do that again, then read my lips. I think we can be saying that now that we have another bush in the, in the White House. Read my lips, my parents would say. We will warm a certain portion of your anatomy in order to heat up the truth in another portion of said same anatomy. You know how parents do that. Oh, I tell you, you always understood your parents' conditional warning, didn't you? You always understood it. If you do thus and so, then you receive this or that. Let's, let's, let's write that in here. If you do thus and so, then you will receive this or that. that that's just the nature of conditional Warnings or conditional prophecies, promises. Now, I want to be quick to interject, and I need to do it right here, because my mom and dad get these tapes. I need to say, my parents' love for me was never conditional. Never. Didn't matter how I behaved, how poorly, whatever. All through my boyhood days, I knew mom and dad loved me no matter what. They never said to me, if you behave in this way, then we will love you as our son. Never, never, never. The issue was never their love for me. Which, by the way, is the way it has been from the beginning with God and his children. God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, hey, if you will trust me and stay away from this tree, then you may live in this garden forever. I promise. If then. See, if then. Now, if you choose not to trust me and you want to go ahead and eat from this tree, then you're going to die. You're going to walk away from the one who keeps you alive. You will die. But if you prefer, see, God, God, God's promises, God's warnings alike have always been conditional. But just like my parents, his love has never been and never is conditional. Is that in there? Just like my parents. Because I love you, God says, I'm committed to your freedom. And because I'm committed to your freedom, I will never force you to choose my way. If you choose my way, I promise it's life. <laughs> but you don't have to choose my way. If you say no, thank you, I will honor your request. Now, I must tell you, you walk away from me, you're pulling the plug on the life support system. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it, I'm the only life there is. But if you, you don't have to come. Ladies and gentlemen... It is precisely because God's love is unconditional that His promises and, and, and warnings are all conditional. Put that down right there. That's a key point. The very fact that God's love is unconditional is the reason His promises and warnings are conditional. He honors your liberty. He honors my freedom. They say, oh, come on, Dwight. Okay, okay, okay. I thought we were talking about Israel today. What in the world do conditional prom promises and conditional warnings have to do with Israel? I want to tell you something, my friend. They have everything to do with Israel, and that's what left behind left behind. Fashion your seatbelts. Let's do a history tour of Israel together. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. I want you to read this, not on the screen, but in your very own Bible. Exodus 19. Mount Sinai. Ooh, the Ten Commandments come in chapter 20. 
But this is Exodus 19. This is the gathering of Israel at the foot of that smoky, rumbling, thundering, trumpet-blasting mountain. Exodus chapter 19, let's pick it up in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if... Look for that if-then formula. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Do you see the telltale if-then formula? Do you see it? If-then. Write it in your study guide, by the way. If-then. There it is, those words. If-then. Do you see the telltale if-then formula? If-then you be my people forever. See? God is always operating that way. This isn't mean, old God. This is God saying, I honor you. I honor your freedom. If in freedom you choose me, you know you're my people. If. All right? Well, the sad story of Israel is embarrassing, familiar to you and me, because it's the story of all our lives. Roller coaster, up, down, up, down. One year up, next year down. One year up, next year down. Just like the way you live spiritually, they lived. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. I've been reading the Pentateuch through this new year. In the books of history, just finished Second Samuel yesterday. Oh, how familiar the story. Let me take you to some lines from the book of Judges after the time of Moses and Joshua. This is Judges chapter 2, verse 7. The people worshipped the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So far, so good. But look at verse 11, Judges 2. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they worshipped the Baals. How sad that is. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. Yeah, you, you, you didn't want me. Uh, you're on your own. And as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them, they were in great distress. Let's go on. Verse 18, whenever, but then the Lord said, oh, oh, these are my kids. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he delivered them all from the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge for the Lord would be moved to pity by their groaning because of those who persecuted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. They would not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. And folks, it's the story of their lives. It's the story of our lives. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. God, say, what do I do? And then they want a king. So, okay, I'll give you a king. You want to be like all the others. And then you have this litany. Of headlines, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, all the way through until finally God throws his hands in the air. And by the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, God says, hey, 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 hey. Look at this, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways. He's been saying this the entire Old Testament. Amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place, I beg of you. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Oh, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Nothing's going to happen to us. We've got the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For, verse 5, Jeremiah 7, if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, 
or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. That land is not yours. I gave it to your ancestors. I'd love to have you stay, but you don't have a title of this land. It's contingent. If then, if then, if then. It's contingent on our partnership. Mark that down. There is no possession of the land. It's contingent on partnership with Yahweh, the God of the covenant. In fact, Jeremiah says, I want to tell you something. This is the way God operates with all prophecy. Now, this is a key text and it's in your study guide. Go to Jeremiah chapter 18. At one moment, God is speaking through Jeremiah. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. Keep going. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. These are my chosen ones. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. You say, ah, oh, come on, Dwight, but that's, that's dealing with nations in the world. That is not dealing with Israel. Oh, yeah? Look at the very next verse, verse 11. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I'm a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you from your evil way and amend your ways in your doing. He's talking about Israel. My response is contingent upon your response, not my love. But my prophecy, my promise, it's conditional. Put it down in your study guide, please. God's promises and prophecies alike are conditional. Write the word conditional in, please. Are conditional. Classic proof of that, by the way, is the wonderful story of Jonah and Nineveh, isn't it? Yeah. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I'm so, I've had it with Nineveh. They, they, they are the evil of the evil. They're the mother of all evil. Go nuke them. Tell them I'm going to nuke them in 40 days. 40 days. Poof. You're gone. Jonah goes and obeys God. He tells them they're going to get nuked. And God says, can you believe this? The pagans respond in a way Israel does it. They break down, repent. Please. And God's, God has pity on them. He says, I changed my mind. I'm not going to destroy them at all. Much, of course, to Jonah's consternation. Too bad Israel and Jerusalem did not respond to God as their pagan captors did Nineveh and then later Nebuchadnezzar. Too bad. So often to exile, God allows his children to be taken. He lets them reap the inevitable consequences of their choice to live apart from their divine protector, their divine friend, their divine guardian, their divine father. In fact, do you think God is enjoying this? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God cries out to them, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Come on. I don't want this. Turn back. Turn back. Well... Divine love, that heart refuses to let them go. And so while Daniel is pleading, pleading with God to fulfill his promise to return Israel after 70 years of exile to their homeland, God honors his faithful, faithful friend Daniel with an insightful depiction of God's love giving one more 
probationary chance. Daniel 9. We spent all last weekend together in Daniel 9. I want to put that line up for the beginning of that breathtakingly accurate, stunning prophecy. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed. I wish you'd write that word decreed. Because that's a key word. You've got 70 weeks. 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city. Listen to me carefully, Daniel. Your people, Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem, have 70 weeks left. Hey, did your mother ever come to you and do that? Come on, be honest now. Did mother ever do that to you? I mean, did she say, you got 30 seconds to make up your mind? Huh? I want to tell you something. It wasn't always 30 seconds, but whenever my parents added a time limit to their conditional promise or prophecy, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that they were utterly serious about what they have just said. I mean, when your mama says you got 30 seconds, it is the height of folly to ask for 45. You say, I can do it in 15. Your people have 70 weeks, Daniel. I'm adding a time to it now. Mama's really serious now. I mean, you know, Mama lets you go. She lets you go. She lets you go. But when she finally says, this is it, you got, you, you got 70 weeks. Now, we learned last year, last uh, week, rather, that uh, the 70 weeks really is translated in the Hebrew, 70 weeks of years, by the parallel with the time in captivity. God says, look, I'm going I'm to take the time in captivity, multiply it by the perfect number seven. I'm going to give you 490 years. That's it. That is it. Don't negotiate with me. Seventy weeks. I, I, I can only imagine Daniel. We don't have Daniel's response. I can only imagine Daniel, the friend of God, going to the mat that day and begging God. Oh, I am sure that your people and my people with that probation will seize the moment. Carpe diem. They will take advantage of your gracious offer, O God. And when the probationary time for the nation of Israel was nearing its end, God pulled out all the stops He could find. And in fulfillment with the prophecy of Daniel 9, God sent His Son, the Messiah. Oh, I love this. Look at this. Galatians 4.4. 4. It's in your study guide. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come. What's that mean? Daniel 9 time. Time is fulfilled, Jesus said in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. When the fullness of time. See, Paul and Jesus and Daniel all concur. It's when we get out of step with the Bible that we're in trouble. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That means born a Jew. God came, a Jew, to save the human race. And He began with His own people. And from the moment of the Messiah's anointing, as Daniel 9 predicted, when, the, when He would be anointed, Messiah means the anointed one, when the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at His baptism in that supernatural, visible way. Do you know what, folks? Jesus was the hit of His homeland. He was their favorite son. They called Him Son of David. Just a code word for Messiah. They recognized his messianic role. He was popular. He was applauded, adored, adulated by the masses of Israel. Never forget this is a critical point. You'll see why in a moment. He was loved. For three and a half years as he taught them and healed them and comforted them and led them. He was loved by the crowds, but hated and envied by the ecclesiastical and political leadership. So much so 
that it cut Jesus to the core of his being. Because what good is it to win the hearts of the people if I can't win their leaders? He is so hurt. The pain is so deep that twice, near the end of his life, twice, he publicly bursts into tears. Watch this. Luke chapter 19. Triumphal entry. And as Jesus came near and saw the city, this is verse 41, those of you listening on the radio, Luke 19, 41. As He came near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And I want you to notice, Jesus now predicts the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, the final punchline to Daniel 9, your destruction is coming. He predicts Daniel 9 will come true. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The words, too somber to miss, Christ predicts Daniel 9's 70th week will come true for that generation and He weeps over what might have been. The crowds adored him, but he weeps for the capital and its rulers. Look at this. The second time he burst into tears. Matthew chapter 23. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is verse 37. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It is over for your house, O Israel. There will never be another temple. No more temple. I leave this place desolate now. It's over. Finis. You will never see me in this building. Until you see me on the clouds of glory, it's over. Have you ever heard a mother weep over her son or her daughter who has rejected her maternal love? Have you? I have. And I can tell you it is a deep and terrible pain that erupts in those anguished and choking sobs of a mother whose heart is irreparably broken and I hope to never hear it again. But I shall because of my work. In Christ Jesus, we are confronted with the anguish of unrequited divine love. This is a critical point. I want to make sure you get it. It's right here in your study guide. Turn it over. God does not stop loving. Rather, He stops being loved. That's the issue. He never stops loving. It's a mother's heart, like a hen would gather her chickies under her wings. I have longed for you, Jerusalem. It's a mother's heart within the heart of the Messiah. God does not stop loving. Rather, He has stopped being loved. And when God is spurned and turned away, what choice is left for Him? Nothing. It's over. It's one of the most heartbreaking parables. Jesus tells it on the eve of His death. There's no point in hiding the truth any longer. Matthew 21. We read it a moment ago. I want to go back to it. 
There's a surprise to that ending. Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. You know the story. Put a, put a fence around it. Put a watchtower in it. said, this is a wonderful vineyard. I'm going to get some tenants. Tenants, I want you to watch this vineyard for me. Please, watch the vineyard. Owner left, went to another country. Now, harvest time comes. The owner says, hey, i got some grapes coming to me. So the owner starts sending, you know the story, he starts sending servants. One after another. Take the first servant, say, beat him out of here. Take the next servant, what do they do? Seize him. Killed one, stoned another. Finally, he's all out of service. So what am I going to do? These people, the tenants, aren't listening. Ah, the owner said, I know what I'll do. I will send my son. My son. They will respect, revere, and adore. Now, I want you to pick this up in verse 38. Matthew 21, 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let's get his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Go on. Now, the Middle East loves a story. Oh, Oriental minds love stories. Jesus has set the whole story up. He's coming to the punchline. Here's the punchline. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He asked the chief priests and leaders to whom he's telling the story. And they answer. They are so sucked in. They're so sucked into this story. They love stories that they Answer, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. <sighs> Silence. Jesus was not an inexperienced storyteller. Silence. The point suddenly hits them. And I, I believe it's Luke's gospel where they realize what has just been said and they gasp. It, it will never be. Too late. Too late. You just told the truth. And Jesus says, now he speaks. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, notice this heartache. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. And in the New International Version, that ethnos is the word. It's given to a nation. Ethnos, nation. Revised, new revised kind of smooths it over, but it's nation. And most Christians, oh, stop the story to their harm, have stopped the story right there and concluded Jesus was teaching that God rejected the Jews. And because of that skewed thinking, atrocities like the Holocaust have been perpetrated against the Jews throughout the history of Christianity. How sad. You didn't finish the story. You didn't finish the story. Notice how it ends. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, there was one before this, they realized he was speaking about them. He was not speaking about the people. He was speaking about the ecclesiastical political leadership. You say, prove it, Dwight. Read the next verse. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the crowds loved him. They regarded him as a prophet. They're scared stiff because this man is popular with the masses. The masses have not rejected Christ. He was rejected by the leadership, political and ecclesiastical, of his land. Note very carefully that Matthew chapter 21 will not sanction either of two rampant errors being taught today. This is in your study guide. Error number one. 
God has rejected the Jews. Write in the word rejected. That is an error. You can't go to Matthew 21 to prove that. Sorry. Error number one. God has rejected the Jews. Look at Romans 11. Take a look at this. This will blow your socks off. Romans 11 verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. God has not rejected the Jews. Paul himself tells us, by no means. By the way, the last verse of chapter 10, he's just called them disobedient. And then he says, has God rejected his people? No. He has not rejected his people. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Jew Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This is after the cross. Error number one, God has rejected the Jews. Wrong, 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 wrong. It's been that kind of thinking that has made such heartache out of the two millennia of Christianity for the Jews. But, that does not sanction error number two. Oh, by the way, I want to say before we go to error number two, the Jews are not a rejected people today any more than on the basis of Christianity's failure during the Dark Ages, we are a rejected people today. We failed miserably. The sins of the father is not held against the child. But that doesn't sanction error number two. And here's error number two. Write it down, please. Israel, as a political nation, still has a place in divine prophecy. It does not. It does not. God has not rejected His people, but as a political nation, it's over. Israel does not have a place in Bible prophecy. All those Old Testament prophecies that our dispensationalist friends are hoping and teaching will yet come literally true are all, were all conditional. They have missed that critical point. As a nation, you stay with me as your God and I will stay with you as a nation. But if as a nation you leave me, then I shall have to give the kingdom to another nation, which is exactly what Jesus said. And what nation would that be? What nation? Ah, look at this. One of the great Jews of the New Testament, Peter, is writing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Oh, leave that screen up on, this, on there for a moment. Hey, folks, you just read that a moment ago. You read those words in Exodus chapter 19. Those are the very words that God spoke to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and said, You're my people. You're my people. Peter now comes along and says, Changed. Takes the same words at the... At Mount Sinai, and now applies it to a new nation. Who's that nation? We want to find out who that nation is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, hallelujah, but now you have received mercy. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, New Testament Peter reapplies Old Testament promise. It was conditional. It was conditional. Still is, by the way. And what shall this nation be called? You want the name of the nation? I'm going to give you the name of the nation. Here we come. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is now no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. The Greek word for offspring is sperma. Sperm. Seed. You are Abraham's sperm. Heirs according to the promise. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is a pretty direct lineage when you're called the sperm of somebody. Huh? That's pretty direct. I'd say that's a fairly direct bloodline. Notice what happens. The Old Testament reapplied now by great Jewish 
minds under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They say, it's a new world now. It's a new nation. What's this nation going to be called? Oh, I love this. This is our last text. Galatians chapter 6. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision... Those of you see, that used to be the covenant sign for the Jews. Said, Paul said, it doesn't matter anymore. Circumcision or uncircumcision is anything. But a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. God still has Israel today. Mark it down. Mark it down. The Israel of God. That's the name of God's new nation. He never changed the name. He never changed the name. Write it down in your study guide. The Israel of God. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, males and females. The new Israel of God is but the continuation of God's dream from the very beginning. He's never had to change His dream. That I will have a people on earth who are loyal to me, in love with me, as I am with them. And though all the world should reject me, I will have my Israel of God, no longer bound by political borders or geographic boundaries, no longer a local theocracy. I will now have a global community. My Israel of God will encompass all peoples and bring my salvation to all nations. The last lines to fill in. No longer a geographic theocracy. A political entity ruled by God Himself. No longer a geographic theocracy. God now has a global community. What's the name of this community? The Israel of God. God hasn't had to give up a dream. Not at all. They were all conditional. All those promises. All of them were conditional. All of them. Now the point has been made. I hope clearly enough. The truth has been told. The study can end right here. But I, I want to end with a personal testimony about Israel. Because you see, it does have something to do with what left behind, left behind. You see, left behind desperately needs and wants a reactivated Israel and a rebuilt temple as a part of their end-time strategy. But I want you to know, it is not God's end-time strategy. Listen to me carefully. The temple may get rebuilt. I don't know, we've got a big election coming up here on Tuesday, and Sharon is, is not exactly a, a moderate. It is possible, someday, the temple in Jerusalem gets rebuilt, but ladies and gentlemen, it will have nothing to do with an act of God. It will be an act of government. That temple... That temple will never again be a part of God's plan. He said, Dwight, how can it be so unequivocal? I'll tell you how. Because of what Jesus said. Get this. I've jotted the text down for you in the study guide. What Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said, oh, hey, 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 I see you're a prophet. Should we worship on Mount Gerizim or should we worship on Mount Zion? Jesus says, look at this, uh, John 4, 21. Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father. <laughs> Not on any of these mountains. For God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You know what she said? Hey, you know what she says? That when the Messiah comes, He's going to tell us what's true. The Messiah will tell us, and Jesus, in the most, the most uh, unequivocal self-confession in, in all of the Gospels, admitting He's the Messiah, she says, I know when the Messiah comes, He's going to set this all straight. Jesus says, look at me. Look, look, look. The one speaking to you. 
I am He. In the Greek, it's I am. I am. I am the Messiah. The Messiah is the embodiment of God's temple. God will never need a temple on earth again. The Messiah came. I am. Because the I am came. There is no plan ever. Let them build three temples in Jerusalem. It will never be God's plan. Get that straight, student of Bible prophecy. Never. Which is why left behind and dispensationalists are utterly distracted by what is happening in Israel today. What are you saying, Dwight? Are you against Israel? I am not. I love Israel. I have Jews who are listening on the radio right now. I've talked to Jews. I love their land. I'm not a citizen of that land. I've visited it. It's the cradle of the greatest stories on earth in my own spiritual journey. My faith stories are all wrapped up in that little land. You know, Tim LaHaye is right. Israel's in the news every day. I mean, we've got the violence going on there between the Palestinians. We have the election coming up. Everybody knows the dome of the rock. Everybody knows. In fact, I was in Israel. Let's put that picture up. I was in Israel. Oh, we're looking. You see the dome there in the background? I was there. You can't find me in there, but I'm there. I was there. I love Israel. The whole world knows Israel is critical to stability in the Middle East. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? This is a parish of 104 nations. I have Arab friends, too. I love my Arab friends. It is a mistake for Christianity to ever ally itself with any ethnic group or race. It's a mistake. When the church is identified with a race or a nation or a people as God's chosen ones as it has in the past, it has resulted in great harm. The Holocaust is the tragic result of the church elevating one race above another. And I tell you what, it hardly makes sense now to favor and elevate the victims of the Holocaust into a new destiny. It does not make sense. In fact, from conversations I've had, I have learned that contemporary Jews are not flattered by this brand of evangelical dispensationalism that attempts now to assert Israel's divine destiny. To the Jews, to the modern Jew, you know what the modern Jew says? That is just another Christian attempt to manipulate us upon the strings of a divine puppeteer. We will determine our own destiny. Secular Jews, that's the way they feel. Can't blame them. Of course God loves the Jews, but God loves the Arabs. And God loves the Christians. God's love for His children is absolutely unconditional. He will never love one or ask His followers to love one nation or race over another. But let me tell you, really, bottom line, my deepest concern, unfortunately, left behind is being distracted by political events in Israel for a very dangerous reason. So that the Christian world will be distracted from the real action of the real Antichrist that is stealing upon the whole earth even as we talk right now. That's why I'm concerned. For that reason, I hope you'll join me next time in what will be a stunning and fascinating revelation about the Antichrist that left behind has also left behind. Oh God, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. But the more sure word of prophecy, like a light, has shined on the way. And it is our heart's desire that in humility and in faith 
we walk that pathway upon which your light does shine. Oh God, it is not about us. It is about you. And because it is about you, we long for all Israel to know that truth. We long for Christianity to see that truth. And so may the one who is truth sanctify us all through His Word that we might follow the truth and obey the truth confident that You shall lead us until the journey ends in a Jerusalem made new the new Jerusalem your home And now may the Father who has promised us that city and the Son who came to show us the way and the Spirit who promises to direct our steps unto that eternal abode abide with you and me as we journey on. Amen.